I would invite you to take uh, your bulletins or your Bibles and turn to the scripture passage uh, for today, which is Second Samuel, verse uh, chapter one, verse one through sixteen. Second Samuel, chapter one, the first sixteen verses. Uh, You will notice as we begin reading in verse 1 that the first words are after the death of Saul. It's actually a very important little phrase. Uh, In Hebrew, uh, often that little phrase uh, in the Bible is used to indicate some big change is coming. You could flip to the beginning of Joshua and you would read the words after the death, death of Moses, indicating a big change is about to come. Or you could turn to Judges and you could read the first verse that says, After the death of Joshua. Again, a big change is on the horizon. And so as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read, After the death of Saul, and we're told, that's to echo in our ears, something big is about to happen in this story. Now let me just remind you what was happening one chapter before. The Philistines and Israel were in a battle in the northern part of the country at Mount Gilboa. And the Israeli army, army of Israel, was defeated badly and King Saul was wounded significantly. He was fearing being captured and being tortured. And so we're told at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul took his own life by falling on his sword. David and David's army were about a hundred miles away in the southern part of the country. And they had just had a successful battle against the Amalekites. And David had rescued Israel, the children, the women, and the men, and the possessions that had been taken captive by the Amalekites. And he had rescued them and defeated the Amalekites. A survivor of the battle in the north with Saul came to David to tell him what had happened. This man arrives and tells David a story, although the story that he tells him isn't exactly the right story. Let's look and see what we are told in 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. 
Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this part of your word, we thank you for it. We thank you for giving us these true historical stories of what has happened in the history of your people. As we read it, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you want us to know about it. And even more than that, Father, we pray that you would show us the gospel of your grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why God decided to include stories in the Bible? I mean, think about that for a second. God could have given us his word in any way that he wanted to. And there are times, I confess, that I think that it probably would have been better if he had just given us, rather than ten commandments, maybe a thousand commandments. Or uh, uh, just a long uh, list of instructions of what it is to believe in God and to follow him. Uh, can't you just relate it at least a little bit of how it would be nice if the entire Bible was like the book of Romans, where we have this wonderful explanation of the gospel from beginning to end and this, this argument, this, this uh, very clear case for biblical Christianity. Wouldn't it be easier if we had a Bible that just had that in it? But God decided to give us stories. He gives us narrative. I think it's good for us to ask why. There must be something about stories. There must be something about narratives that help us to understand who we are and who God is. To understand how God has been at work from creation down throughout the time that's recorded for us in the Bible. We're about to embark on about nine months of story, of narrative. And in particular, we will be reading about the story of God who has provided a new king for Israel, what happened in the life of that king, and what happened in the life of God's people. We'll see that it is indeed important for us to know this true story, this historical part of our own history We can learn about who God is and about how we are to live as his people. But even more importantly, we will read through the story of King David of the greater king who is to come, King Jesus. Now, just a quick recap of 1 Samuel. Uh, We are reading and beginning in 2 Samuel. Now, originally... There was not a 1st Samuel and a 2nd Samuel. There was the book of Samuel. It was one scroll. But as Samuel was then translated from Hebrew into Greek, 
the Greek language being a little bit longer in the way that it's written, the scroll became too big and too large for it to be just on one scroll. And so they separated it into two scrolls. And they called the first scroll, 1 Samuel. And they called the second scroll, 2 Samuel. So it's important to know that we're actually jumping here into kind of the middle of a story. And so what was happening in the first part of the story? The story began with the birth and the life of Samuel. And Samuel's rise in his service to the Lord, both as prophet and as a judge. And in the middle part of 1 Samuel, we read the story of Israel going to an elderly Samuel and saying, we want a king just like all of the other nations around us. We want to be ruled by a king and an affront to God and his kingship over his people. God gave them their desire. And so we read in the middle part of first Samuel, the rise of Saul and his becoming king of Israel. Now, there's one key detail that we need to know as we embark on second Samuel. And that is that Saul was given a very specific command to defeat and destroy the Amalekite people. He didn't do it. He, he blatantly disobeyed God's order. And as a result, the Lord promised that he would remove Saul as king of Israel. The last part of 1 Samuel is the rise of who would be the new king, David, the shepherd boy. And given a promise by God that he would be made king of Israel. And toward the end of 1 Samuel, we read Saul on a number of occasions trying to kill David. And we end 1 Samuel in chapter 31 with Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. So, now we're turning the page. We're turning the page from 1 Samuel 31 to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we're reading the story of how the news of Saul's death came to David. And what are we supposed to learn about this? I want us to see three things today. The first is... That we, might, we need to be ready at all times for news, events that might come into our lives that would change our lives forever. We need to be ready for that. Proactively ready. Secondly, that it's not only appropriate for us to grieve when that time is needed, but it's actually necessary for us to do that and to do it genuinely. And then thirdly, we must have real, biblical, godly fear of the one true Lord God Almighty, and that should influence how we live. So let's look at these three things. First of all, we need to be ready. Read verse 1 again with me. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. As Second Samuel opens, we know Saul is dead on Mount Gilboa. The armies of Israel have been badly defeated... The cities of Israel in the north have been abandoned by God's people and the pagan nation of the Philistines have moved in and taken over those cities. But David knows nothing of that. As we begin 2 Samuel, he knows nothing of what's happened in the north. There's no email that he got. He didn't get a text message or a phone call. He couldn't check his social media accounts. He couldn't turn on cable news and find out what happened in the massive battle between Israel and the Philistines. There hadn't even been time for a letter to arrive. 
What David knew was this. He had just achieved a great victory over the Amalekites in the south. And he had rescued the families and the possessions of the people of Israel. And he had returned. And I can only imagine there was a great celebration going on in the city of Ziklag. Suddenly, everything changed. Verse 2. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Everything changes in verse 2. A man arrives from the north, from Saul's camp. And we're told that he had clothes that were torn. He had heaped dirt on his head. And that is a very clear sign for somebody in that culture that he was in a time of mourning, of grief. Now later we're going to find out that this man that shows up is an Amalekite. He had been living as a sojourner in Israel. He had been part of Saul's army in the north. The news that he brought to King David or to David was something that changed the mood. The atmosphere changed dramatically. Saul, the king of Israel, was dead. The man even had proof of that. Did you notice? He had Saul's crown and his royal armband with him. Let me just pause here to give you a little bit of irony that's in the text. Remember, Saul had disobeyed the Lord and failed to kill off the Amalekites earlier. And as a result, he lost the right to be king. And now, an Amalekite who lived because of Saul's disobedience was the one who grabbed Saul's crown and brought it to David. And it wasn't just Saul that died either because we're told that three of Saul's sons died, including Jonathan who not only was the next in the line to the throne, but was a very close personal friend of David. So, here in the midst of a time of celebration of the defeat of the Malachites and the return of God's people and possessions, tragedy struck in David's camp. His life changed in an instant. And so here's the first point that I want to make. It simply is this. And this is more by way of observation than a clear pronouncement from the text, but an observation nonetheless that we must always be ready for news and events that could change our lives in an instant. John Calvin, as he was reflecting on this passage, says that God gave us this passage to remind us never to be too comfortable in this life. He reminds us that we always need to be prepared. We always need to be ready for difficulties that might be coming to us. To be prepared for, for hard things, for hardship that might come in this life. That doesn't mean that we need to walk around in life always being afraid or pessimistic or always uh, the, the glass is always half empty kind of mindset. Always looking over our shoulder for what is going to happen to us. But what it means is, is that we must never become so comfortable and lazy here in this life that we forget that this is not our ultimate home. We need to be ready for hardships to come. That helps us. So when they do come, we're not completely undone and incapacitated. It helps us to deal with the disappointments and the bad news and the circumstances of life becoming difficult. 
and perhaps even loss of comfort. After all, isn't this what Jesus told us in John 16 as he was speaking to his disciples? In this world, you will have tribulation, troubles, hardships. So we need to expect it. We need to be ready for it. We need to be emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually prepared for the hardships that this life will have for us. Not to become cynical or jaded or numb, but to know that even in the midst of the hardships in this life, our God is still at work, even through the hardships of our life. And so we must trust him. We must trust him. Trust Him even when those difficulties come. Secondly, we must be genuinely grieved. Now I want you to think about uh, this, this Amalekite man who came to David, came down the, the many miles to bring this news to David. How do you think the Amalekite man probably expected that David would respond? Now we're going to see in just a minute that I think it's pretty obvious that he expected that David was going to be happy about the news that he was bringing. I mean, think about this, right? David's arch enemy, the, the man who on numerous occasions had tried to kill David, coming very close, now was gone. Now was dead. The, the one who in a certain sense, although I'm sure David didn't think of it this way, but in a certain sense, the one who was blocking David's kingship from going forward was now removed and out of the way. You can see how the Amalekites playing this in his mind and he's thinking, this is an opportunity. Surely David will rejoice when I bring him this incredible news that Saul is no more. Isn't that likely how we would have responded? Think about the times when someone or something is in the way of you getting what you want. Or of you being comfortable. Even if that person or that thing is removed in some kind of tragic circumstance, isn't there just a little bit of us that is relieved? that is glad, that is thankful. No more conflict, no more tension, no more obstacle, no more difficulty for us. It's been removed. You think about maybe times when a difficult boss is fired or removed. Or maybe when a bully at school gets disciplined, maybe even kicked out of school. Or when our particular political candidate wins a decision in November. Or when a teacher or a leader or a church that's maybe from some different theological tradition falls or scandal erupts. Isn't it easy in those moments to have kind of this deep undercurrent of pride of arrogance, of haughtiness, even delight. We would expect the news that the Amalekite brought to David to bring David to a sense of joy, that David would feel empowered. But is that what we see? Look at verses 11 and 12. Then David, after he heard the story, 
Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. What we see here is not joy, not rejoicing, not arrogance, but what we see here is genuine and significant grief. Genuine grief over the loss of his king. Over the loss of his dear friend Jonathan. Over the loss of people that he didn't even know that had fallen in battle. David knew that it was wrong to have a vengeful heart. He knew that God alone is the ultimate judge. And he knew that it was wrong to be self-righteous and arrogant and haughty. Even in the midst of such news. That's true for us as well. When we see the downfall of perceived enemies. Those that we have particular differences with. Other believers or churches that we disagree with. When we see their downfall. It should not make us proud. It should not make us arrogant. It should not make us haughty. It should be it should make us full of grief and sorrow. It should make us moved to pray. We should be people who are driven to live out what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Very much in the same kind of ethos. He says in Romans 12. He says in Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. With good. Before we move on to the third point, let me just suggest to you that there's an important principle here for us to be reflecting on as we get closer to November. As we're thinking about and preparing for a national election in this country, if your candidate wins in November, there is no place for arrogance or haughtiness. Because no matter who wins in November, our country will remain deeply fractured and broken. We will still live in a land where sin is celebrated and even legislated. We will still live in a place where Jesus is not worshipped and obeyed by all. So we should be driven to be people of genuine grief and sorrow. That we would be driven to humility and prayer. 
that we would be driven to repentance and renewed commitment to pursue righteousness and obedience to the Lord. When we win and our perceived enemy loses, there's no place for pride or arrogance or haughtiness. But where it's needed, we should be people of humility and genuine grief. Thirdly, we must have a biblical fear of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that shows up often in the Bible, the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, verse 10, very famous passage. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is what is what is biblical fear? What does it mean to fear the Lord in the biblical sense? The word the, the biblical word fear as in fearing the Lord means reverence and honor and a deep respect. It, it even has this connotation of of allegiance and obedience of fear. Following the one that you are fearing. Uh, Our family a few months ago uh, watched the movie called Free Solo. If you haven't seen it before, it's a very interesting movie. It's actually more of a documentary film, uh, 2018 documentary film. It tells the story of a man named Alex Honnold. Honnold is a rock climber. In fact, he, he is a free solo rock climber. And what that means is, is that he climbs with no safety support, no ropes, uh, just him hanging on to whatever he's climbing onto. The documentary chronicles Honnold's quest to do a free solo climb of El Capitan in the Yosemite National Park. El Capitan is a vertical rock formation that goes 3,000 feet straight up. Now, 3,000 feet, how big is that? How long is that? That's the equivalent of 10 football fields, one on top of another. Over a half mile in length. You're standing at the bottom of El Capitan, or El Cap as it's referred to, and you're looking up over a half mile. And Honnold decided that he was going to be the first to climb this free solo. No ropes. It took him three hours and 56 minutes. He was the first to do it with no ropes, no safety equipment. It was just himself, some chalk for his hands, and the face of the rock. Now, and he accomplished it. Now, the documentary makes this very clear. The only way that you could successfully scale El Capitan is to have real and substantive respect for that rock face. To to have a sense of of awe, a sense of reverence, a, a sense of respect when you look at this and not to have a sense of haughtiness or pride. Because if you didn't come at El Capitan trying to free solo it with some sense of, of fear, it would mean almost your certain death. The Bible says that we're supposed to fear the Lord. We're to honor the Lord. We're to reverence the Lord. We are to respect the Lord. We are to have awe of the Lord. We are to have an allegiance, our obedience to the Lord. And if we don't, it means certain death. David lived this out, did he not? 
Twice in 1 Samuel, David had the chance to king, kill King Saul. We actually read about one of those earlier in our service in 1 Samuel chapter 24. He didn't do it either time. He didn't kill Saul when he was given the opportunity, even, uh, even when his men encouraged him to do it. Why not? Because, David said, he knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. David feared the Lord. He honored the Lord. He revered the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. And he knew that the Lord had established Saul as the king, as the anointed one, until God decided that he would no longer be king. Now, back to our story. It's too bad that the Amalekite didn't have that same kind of fear. After the period of grieving that David and his men went through, we read verse 13, that David came back to the Amalekite man and he asked him some follow-up questions. Verse 13 says this, And David said to the young man who told him, who had told him these things, Where do you come from? Now, if you remember the story back in verse 8, David already knew where the man came from. The man had told him he was an Amalekite. So why was he asking him again? David was checking on something and he got his answer. Notice that the man said in verse 13, after David asked him, he said, he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. Now, what does that mean? It means that this man, this Amalekite, had been living in Israel. He was living with God's people in Israel as a sojourner, as an outsider. He was an Amalekite, but he was a part of God's people. He had been a part of Saul's army, apparently, in the north. He knew the customs. He knew the laws of Israel. And that's what David was checking on. Where, where did you come from, did you say? Oh, you're an Amalekite, but you've been living with the people of God. Then that means that you know our customs. You know our, our ways. You know our laws. You know... That no person is to lift a hand on the Lord's anointed. That's why David asked him in verse 14. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now we need to pause here for just a minute and to understand the irony that's taking place here. If you did read 1 Samuel 31... Uh, perhaps yesterday or the day before as you were preparing for today. Then as we read 2 Samuel chapter 1, I hope that you noticed there were some discrepancies in the stories. The story that the Amalekite told David about Saul's death here in verses 1 through 10 is not the same story that the narrator told us in 1 Samuel chapter 31 about Saul's death. At the end of 1 Samuel 31, the narrator told us that Saul took his own life by falling on his sword. The Amalekite story was a little bit different. Not completely different, but just enough. He killed Saul in order for Saul not to be captured and tortured. Again, remember, the Amalekites thinking, this is going to be good news to David. This guy's about to become king. I'm going to bring him great news. He's going to be happy. He's going to be glad with, for me. And I'm going to get some kind of reward out of this. That was what was going through the Amalekite's mind. And so in a sense, the Amalekite was in double trouble. He had lied to David about the exact details of how Saul had died in order to get a reward from David, who would be the next king. And on top of that, the story that he used to make up 
actually included him failing to fear the Lord by not protecting the Lord's anointed. So in a sense, the Amalekite had failed to fear the Lord two ways. He lied to David, the future Lord's Lord's anointed, and he made up a story where he didn't fear the Lord because he failed to protect Saul's, Saul's life, who was the Lord's anointed at that moment. Now David only knew the story that the Amalekite had told him, but that was enough. Notice what he did in verses 15 and 16. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. There is a clear and a strong reminder for all who would call themselves God's people that we are called to fear the Lord to honor, to respect, to to reverence, to put our allegiance in the Lord, to be obedient to the Lord, to to, to spend our life pursuing righteousness as defined by the Word of God. There There is no place for unconfessed and unrepentant sin in the life of God's people. We can't hide anything from the Lord. Jesus said that, did He not? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Paul said something similar in Romans. God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Our lives as God's people must be characterized more and more by fearing the Lord. Honoring Him, obeying Him, loving Him. Patient obedience and trusting the Lord. So I just ask you to reflect about how you need to be doing a better job of that this coming week. Perhaps in your vocations. In your families. In your recreations. In your conversations with unbelievers. We need to be growing in our understanding of and exhibiting of a true biblical fear of the Lord. Now this leads us to one last thing that I want us to think about today. A question that we're going to come back to over and over and over again in Second Samuel. And the question is this. Should we just be like David? Is that the message? Is that the message of 2 Samuel? Is that the message for you to take home today? Should we, just, should we just be like David? And the answer is this. Yes and absolutely not. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Follow me as I follow Jesus. So inasmuch as David gives us a picture of what faithful and loving obedience to the Lord looks like, then yes, we should follow his example. As David David shows us what it looks like to be prepared for hard and difficult news. As he models for us what genuine and right grief looks like. As he shows us what it's like to have a biblical fear of the Lord, then we should be following David's model. But when we read the Bible, we must always remember the deadly bees. Do you know about the deadly bees? 
preaching professor in seminary taught me about the deadly bees. Be like sermons. Be like David. Be like Daniel. Be like Joshua. Be like Paul. As we are going to see over and over and over again in 2 Samuel, David was a deeply flawed, sinful, broken man. David was desperately in need of a Savior, of a Redeemer, to to pay for David's sins and to credit David with righteousness. If our hope in this life If our hope for the life to come is that we would be like David or be like anyone else, then we have no hope and our future is nothing less than eternal separation from God's love. No sinful human being can be the ultimate hero of the story. So the answer to the question, is the message of 2 Samuel that we should just be like David, is absolutely not. Instead, we must see the king who is behind the king. And unless we get this point, we will not read 2 Samuel correctly. David points forward to the greater and more ultimate king who was to come. The one who was not only king of Israel, but the king of kings and lord of lords. The one who was the son of David, who would be David's king. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who would come to the city of Jerusalem and he would look at the city. This place that was filled with people who would hate him and who would mock him and who would torture him and who would kill him. But he did not rejoice in the coming destruction of of those people. Instead, what do we read? That as Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept. He grieved. He grieved the unrighteousness and the lack of love that he saw. And even when they nailed him to the cross, Jesus had no vengeful spirit. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Showing biblical fear and honor and respect and obedience to his father in heaven by willingly going to the cross and dying for the sins of his people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be reminded that Jesus is the greater, he is the better King David. Who would live a life of perfect biblical fear and love and obedience to his father. And then who would willingly give his life in death to pay for the sins of his people. So that all would not just be like David, but we would believe in Jesus. And through him have forgiveness and eternal life. The more that that gospel of grace gets into our hearts and our minds, the more that we will have motivation and power to love the Lord and to live like the people that he's called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories that you've included, these true stories of How you've been at work in the life of your people in this creation. We thank you that they are recorded for us. We are thankful that we can read them. As we embark on the study of this portion of your word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. Hearts and minds to understand. That we would grow in our uh, desire to live lives of holiness and obedience to you. 
But Father, that we would see the gospel of your grace and mercy. Help us to see these things through the work of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.